It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today with us, we've got Andrew Toop. He is the CFO of Forefront. Andrew, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Josh, thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you being with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the industry, all that good stuff. Yeah, so I, I started my career, you know, in the mid-90s um, in finance. I was a you know very junior investment banker here in Boston. And then I spent the next 20 years after I left investment banking as an analyst and portfolio manager looking at small cap growth companies. I was an equity analyst. Spent, started at MFS here in Boston and then the bulk of my time at uh, BlackRock. Um, and how did I get into the cannabis industry? So in in 2000, uh, in 2013, I was uh, I left BlackRock and I was looking for something new to do. And one of my friends, Josh Rosen, who was the founder of Forefront, uh, was looking for investors and he was looking for talent to bring into the industry. And so I sort of scratched my head. You know, this was this was even more taboo in 2013. I sort of looked at my wife and said, "Geez, you know." You know, am I getting into the weed industry? And she looked at me and said, why the hell not? Like, give it a go. And so I um, made an investment in Forefront and then I jumped full-time into the business um, in 2014. Um, you know, Forefront was originally started as a consulting company. And, you know, shortly after um, I came into the business, we sort of said, well, if we're really good at winning these licenses on behalf of consulting clients, why don't we just do this ourselves? And so, our model became not unlike other MSOs where we were going after de novo licenses and limited license states, trying to, you know, do little tuck in acquisitions here and there, um, trying to get a bigger addressable market to, um, you know, for the portfolio. Before I dive into multi-state operators, you know, MSOs, um, kind of the rise and fall of, of MedMen, um, you know, when you got in, Boston wasn't an opportunity. Massachusetts, you know, really didn't have a market. A lot has happened. So before we get into kind of, you know, East Coast, West Coast, expanding or emerging markets and uh, existing, I want to kind of dive into BlackRock. You were there for over 10 years yeah. uh, as a uh, fund manager, uh, portfolio manager. And so I want to, I kind of, I'm curious to know your opinion on the phrase cash is king what that means to you and is it relevant to the cannabis industry i think it's very relevant um you know one of the interesting things when i when i sort of take off my forefront hat and put on my investor hat and look at this industry and how it's laid out you made a really you made a great point up front you know when in, when we first started in the us you know the big mantra was how many states can you get into and when you looked at a comp table talking about valuations and cannabis, you know, next to the forefront name was, you know, how many states they were in, you know, are they in 10 states or seven states or 14 states? And that was supposed to be some proxy of, you know, what your multiple would, should be or what your valuation should be. And capital formation in this industry, this is a capital intensive business and capital formation has historically been really hard. So if you are in 14 states trying to raise the capital to build out operations across that footprint. And then having enough operation, operating talent to come in and run it effectively is really, really hard. And so your observation earlier, you know, we had 
if you if you go back three four years ago, the the clear leaders in the space were in the U.S. were I would say MedMen, Ianthus, and Acreage, and they had these massive footprints. And I think is what's so interesting about where we are in cannabis right now is because we had a big liquidity crunch in 2019, and it really shook people out. So the folks that you know were you know, more of the promoters, the carnival barkers that didn't really know how to operate started to get really, really wobbly. And, and a lot of the, some of those folks didn't make it. And so here you have, you go into 2021 right now, where a lot of these players in the industry, you look at the top 10, 15 players in the industry, but most of them are profitable. And that, that liquidity crunch of 2019 really made people get religion on being profitable, generating cash flow, um, showing um, strong incremental margins as, as you add revenue to the business model. And so why I think this is such an incredible time for investors is because you still have an opportunity to buy these US names at really reasonable prices, um, in my estimation, you know, kind of 12, 13, 14 times next year's EBITDA. Um, you have a great regulatory tailwind and investors investors are, are able to invest in companies that you know aren't just fly by night. You know, these are real tried and true companies that are making real profits. And so when you combine all that with the fact that institutions still need to come in, the Black Rocks, the Fidelities don't own these stocks broadly yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's all part of the opportunity that's still yet to come. But having, you know, the industry already go through the maturing process of, you know, profitable growth, good asset allocation, running a good business, that stuff has all happened. And it makes it, I think it makes investing in this space, particularly in the U.S., even more compelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot easier, I would say, now than half a decade ago, simply based on the fact that, in my opinion, it's very, very difficult to sell an idea, uh, to educate, rather, to educate something and then try to sell it. it. Now that cannabis and CBD and everything is at the mainstream, you don't really have to educate people about cannabinoids and CBD. Therefore, you can just focus on what makes you guys unique or your strategy rather than trying to educate and then sell um, I think that's kind of a big push, um, a, a maturing point for the industry. But I think it's been interesting, though, on, on that point. You know, we've been we've been bringing investors up to speed for five years on. You know, the, the just just the basic building blocks of this industry, what the what the levers are, et cetera. And just now we're starting to see the Wellingtons, the Fidelities, the you know, I'm starting to have one on one meetings with those types of guys. And often cases, Josh, like they're, you know, we're getting pretty basic questions from some of those folks like, oh, can you not take it over state lines? It's like, no, you can't. And so I'm, I'm more than happy to do that education. But you're seeing that second wave of big institutions starting to get up to speed. And I think it's going to hit the market here in the next 18 months. So you mentioned liquidity crunch of 2019. There's the pre pre pandemic, there was a lot of ideas and, and people were kind of going at their pace. And then all of a sudden, uh, life as we know, changed drastically. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you were able to pivot to stay relevant during the pandemic. There was a lot of sale leaseback options. Um, I think you guys utilize IIPR 
if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how did that transition play about? How did you strategize which assets to liquidate and where to reinvest? Yeah, so we were a company that was very much on the right track in terms of we were focused on operations, we're focused on the limited license states where you know we thought pricing was going to be buttressed for longer than you know maybe a West Coast state um, or, or where there was unlimited licenses. Um, and we, we did a lot of things right, but we did a lot of, we, you know, we didn't do everything right. And when we entered 2019, you know, we were closing, you know, an acquisition with Canx, which is, um, you know, was our, our Washington assets and that came with our CEO, Leo Gauntmaker. But we, you know, we had grand plans of, okay, we want to, we want to replicate these tried and true brands and standard operating procedures, which we developed in the Washington market. And we wanted to replicate that across our footprint. And that was all well and good, except for, you know, you needed $150 million to do everything we wanted to do, including facilities in Michigan, but a bigger facility in Illinois and so on and so forth. And so we, we were a company that when we entered 2019, 2020, we were burning $3 million a month and we had to sort of say, okay, guys, capital is not available in this space, particularly not for companies that are profitable, that aren't profitable, I should say. And we did a lot of drastic things. We, we, we cut our corporate overhead by 55%. We took our, the number of states we were in from nine down to five. So we, we shed assets where we were retail only, where we couldn't be vertically integrated. Mm. Um, and uh, we made the switch. We made Leo Gauntmaker our CEO. And Leo, I think, is one of the most talented operators in cannabis. So let me sort of spend a minute on that. Forefront, when we started, we were, we were largely the leadership was finance guys. And we saw the value in these limited licenses and uh, because of our regulatory expertise through, you know, Chris Crane, one of our partners, you know, we were really good at winning these licenses and we were pretty good at, you know, opening up retail uh, facilities. What we found is that we stunk at cultivation and production. So we, when we looked around and said, well, geez, how do we buttress our skill set? How do we get sharper here? Uh, we looked at Leo and his team in Washington and sort of said, this is, this is incredible. They had yields in their facilities, you know, over 350 grams a square foot. They were the number two flower producer. The facilities were the number one edibles producer in Washington. And they were really profitable in a really competitive market. And so we looked at them and said, these guys, because they've already been through the ringer of price commoditization and high, and high competition, they figured out how, how, to, how to push low-cost production. You walk into that facility in Washington, it's, it looks the, the closest thing to consumer packaged goods I've seen in cannabis. You know, 200 people, 24 hours a day, three shifts a day. You know, turning out 25 different brands, thousands of SKUs of product, all of which are in the top 10 in Washington State in their categories. And so what, what our thesis was is great. So we, we, we bring that expertise and those brands 
that have been so successful in Washington, and we port them into uh, more nascent recreational markets. Of Massachusetts, Illinois, where we're vertically integrated, uh, and we're entering California right now um, with what we think is the largest cannabis processing facility in the world that opens in the next two weeks. So we're basically taking our low cost production that we've developed in Washington and we're putting it on steroids for the California market. I appreciate you uh, diving into that. I wanted to know, you know, exactly what you were talking about, what you learned from some of those, you know, not mistakes, but what you, what you weren't doing right and kind of correcting that there's a lot to learn from that. So switching from retail only to vertically integrated, yeah. uh, learning from your mistakes or learning from Washington. Washington is a giant petri dish experiment. Yeah. Um, and so cultivation processing, very difficult as agriculture, there's low margins. Um, what do you think is going to happen on a global scale with Canada producing at $6 a gram and Washington producing at such a low dollar amount? Is there going to be an opportunity for you know, Colombia to come into play for, for cultivation? What you learned? What you learned from cultivation? Go ahead. I always thought the notion that you know, Canadian LPs were going to be, you know, the cannabis suppliers to the world growing in the Canadian tundra was preposterous. <laughs> and, and you know, it's as those market caps got bigger and bigger in Canada for some of the original LPs, they had to start to justify their market cap by saying, no, 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 we're not just selling to 40 million people in Canada. We're going to, we're going to be suppliers to Germany and then, and then, and it was, you know, largely BS. Um, I think that, you know, it was, it was sort of market cap justification in my mind. Mm. I would argue that, Yes, you can produce in Colombia for five cents a gram. I would I would argue that we are probably a decade away from U.S. importing cannabis from Colombia. I think that we're five to ten years away from interstate commerce, and I think that I might be in the minority there. I mean, Boris Boris from uh, Cura Leaf is is really beating this low cost production interstate interstate commerce theme hard the last couple of weeks, which. Um, you know, makes me more curious about what Schumer might say when he finally puts out his plan. Mm -hmm. But I think we're five to 10 years away from interstate commerce, let alone bringing, bringing cannabis in from a third, from a, from a Columbia, um, internationally. Um, so yes, I think it's going to continue to commoditize. Um, but I think that it's going to be a while before we import. And so the, the way we look at the industry, you sort of say, okay, well, where's, Where's the sweet spot in the value chain? Longer term, like we're really good at, at cultivating cannabis. We can do it. You know, we're doing it in Massachusetts, close to 400 grams a square foot, which we think is about double the MSO average. So we're really good at it. But we sort of look at it and we're like, longer term, we don't want to be farmers. Like this is commodity stuff. There are going to be farmers that come into this and big, large scale ag in the U.S. that's going to figure out how to grow this really, really cheaply. And so the way that we think about where the sweet spot is in the value chain is it's having um, it's having low cost products that people love. And we want to be a finished goods producer. And you'll notice that we got into California. We don't have a cultivation facility in California. There's plenty of raw material to feed our finished goods. And so we are 
if you look at California, we've basically taken our low cost production in Washington and put it on steroids to hit the California market. Um, and we always say, and this is a big point, Josh, like we think price is our brand and we are very cognizant that the end markets of cannabis have a lot of price elasticity, meaning that if you can give a customer a great product at a great price and you can make margin doing that, you're going to take outsized market share. Um, because, and that, that, that's, it's been a, it's been a big problem. Like great brands came out of California, but if you have a whiz bang saucepan, that's the bees knees and it's premium and everyone loves it. And you have a premium price point, we can come in and undercut that guy by 30% and we'll take all the share. He can't come down here to that, our price point and make any money because he hasn't figured out low cost production. And so the way that we think about brands is giving people and taking a lot of market share by giving people quality products at great prices. And we do that across five, six, seven states that are large rec states. All of a sudden we have national brands and we kind of did it without, you know, the gloss. We just did it by giving people a product that's cheap and that they like. I'm curious about branding because I've got maybe um, a contrarian view that branding isn't it hasn't been established yet people still go in and ask for the highest price at the, or the highest thc at the lowest price yep so is there cannabis branding you said price is your brand price and convenience are the two factors that people choose when are we going to see a commercial where you know it's relative to me that i see it and i say oh i relate to that that's my brand yep. uh, we're not there yet when is that going to happen well i think the only brand in cannabis right now is cookies hmm like I think. And so, you know, look at our Washington facilities. So we've got, you know, our, our, we're the number two flower provider in, in Washington where we have good, better, best flower. Funky Monkeys, our premium brand. Legends is more of our middle of the road brand. And then we have a popcorn bud brand called, called uh, Mini Buds. Um, we in Washington state, when Leo started there six, six, six plus years ago, everyone said, you're crazy. Like to go into Washington state rec market, there are all these established medical brands and they're just, you know, it's already saturated. All but one of those are now gone because they haven't figured out low cost production. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very, we're just very dubious about the celebrity endorsed brands. No one's walking into my Georgetown store saying in Massachusetts saying, give me the Willie's reserve. They're just not. And so what we're seeing is after six years in Washington with close to 10% market share out of our facilities, we are finally having retailers come to us being like, yeah, yeah, we can, we can take up price on, on these brands. People are saying funky monkey. Like we know it's been really consistent. I know what I'm getting. They always have good premium strains. It's always at a it's always at a great price. So long-winded way of saying brands, after six years in Washington, we're finally seeing brands start to matter. And I think that that's probably a pretty good timetable. So as you go to Massachusetts and you go to California, like people hop around from brand to brand to brand on price. And it's, it's going to be a while until things commoditize a little bit and the market shakes out a little bit before I think that you have the opportunity to establish brands, not just selling low THC. Mm -hmm. The other thing we were starting to see a lot of before this whole pandemic was a shift towards profitability, clean balance sheets. 
Um, you had mentioned early on that you guys had a $20 million monthly burn rate, um, but a 10 to 14x EBITDA. So I'm curious about um, where you're looking at in the future. Are you looking for emerging markets? Or are you going to take advantage of distressed assets on the West Coast? And where's BlackRock looking? <laughs> <laughs> so we are... Um... Yeah, I mean the industry the industry shaped up. We shaped up. We got profitable within nine months last year. Um and we got our balance sheet cleaned up where we're in a liquidity position where we've got you know close to 20 million in cash. We've got closely held debt that's not due for 40 plus million in closely held debt that's not due for another two years. So we're feeling good about our balance sheet, but we think that. The opportunities right now, we want to get deeper into the states we're already in. So we want to be, you know, in Massachusetts, we're opening our third uh, retail dispensary uh, next month, uh, pending final approvals from the CCC. Um, but we only have 15,000 square feet of canopy in, in Massachusetts. And our aspirations, and, that, and that's basically only feeding our three stores. And our aspirations are to be wholesalers in the state and to be able to give our finished products and uh, produce our finished products and have them distributed across, you know, all dispensaries in the state. So we have aspirations to go deeper into Massachusetts and Illinois. Uh, we obviously, you know, want to make sure that we nail this California opportunity. Um, and I think, and we have a license pending in New Jersey, which we hope to hear on in the next, uh, in the next, we're hearing in the next 30 days, but my fingers are crossed. So yeah, we might add on another state. We're feeling like we're playing on our front foot. We're feeling like our operating team is really clicking on all cylinders. And we have some confidence in our thesis of taking what we did in Washington and replicating it in other states. We're starting to see proof of concept in Massachusetts and Illinois. So that confidence that that you get from you know being from successful de successfully deploying your brands and SOPs, it makes us want to you know spread our wings a little bit more and maybe add in another state or two. Can you dive into that at all? You, you, can you uh, with first quarter earnings out? Yeah. If you can explain, you know, maybe where you're at with that and what you're going to do uh, in the future. If there's New Jersey or other markets you might be looking at. Yeah, so our first quarter was, you know, terrific. It was it was really driven by, you know, our retail locations outperforming. We we grew sequentially uh 26%. We did 31.4 million in revenues or system-wide sales in the quarter. Um and, you know, generated cash flow, you know, and our our EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA was around 20%. Um so we we really had three messages that we wanted people to take out of our earnings call. First is that the business momentum in our business and in the industry in general is terrific. It was terrific in Q1. It continued into Q3. The second thing that we wanted people to know was that these projects that are going to fuel growth in the back half are on track, namely the opening of our Brookline dispensary which we intend to open in June and our commerce facility in Southern California, which we're turning on in June as well. So the, the projects that are going to fuel uh, growth into the back half and beyond have turned on. And then we wanted to tell people about, you know, the third, which is, you know, what we call big daddy, which is our massive expansion in Illinois, which will start to drive numbers in 23. 
So as we look at our business, all the projects that we need to knock down and complete to set up our growth and really de-risk our growth trajectory, you know, have been achieved and are on track in the case of Illinois. So we are pretty excited about, you know, the setup of our business, the step function growth and revenue, and what that will mean for, you know, incremental EBITDA as we, is that top line ramps. We saw quite the ramp up post-election all the way through January with uh, a, quite the decline after that. Mm -hmm. Do you see the, the pot stock volatility coupled with crypto FOMO kind of taking away from investors going into to cannabis stocks like? Well, so when you had the special election in January and people saw the blue Congress, people got really excited that there were going to be reforms at the federal level in a hurry. And as an example, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest ETF covering us cannabis or us, us MSOs is called MSOS. And that ETF, I think entered the year at around 220 million in assets. And in the middle of February, it was at a billion. So all of that money came in and just jammed the stocks. And then you had some other stuff. You had um, you, you had more institutions. So Putnam is, uh, you know, I, I have connections in the, in the Boston and New York money management community, all who have owned our stock personally and were early investors. But Putnam um, was started buying our stock in their healthcare funds. And so we started to see you know, some cracks in the wall, some plain vanilla institutions starting to come in. Wasatch, uh, which is a really well-regarded mutual fund out, a mutual fund company out in um, Utah, they started coming into cannabis. And I think what happened was a couple things. Uh, I think legislation wasn't moving as quickly. So, you know, that retail crowd that blew into the stocks kind of blew out just as quickly. And then you had some underlying things like Wasatch, who was putting real money to work to the point of, you know, 100 million bucks, I heard, you know, investing in the cannabis industry. They got a tap on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, you have to divest all your cannabis assets because all of a sudden our compliance department isn't cool with us owning U.S. plant touching businesses. And so that took a lot of just the air out of the industry. Um, I would submit that that there was a portfolio manager I worked with who's a pretty Dan Rice, who was an energy portfolio manager at BlackRock when I was there. And once in a while he'd come into your office and say, you'd say, why is the stock trading so low? And he'd say, Andrew, I think it's a gift from the stock market gods. And, and, you know, without any hubris because the markets can do lots of things, but it feels like the setup for this space is just incredible. Like you have, you can buy, 50 to 100% top line revenue growth for profitable revenue growth for 13 to 14 times next year's EBITDA, you know that there's inevitable, the inevitability of federal regulation changes seems like it's like, it seems like it's coming in the next six months, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. You have, you're probably in the second inning of this expansion of, of the cannabis industry. It just seems like, the setup for this. And then as soon as we get anything at the federal level, and I think banking is gonna be really the straw that breaks the camel's back, mm -hmm. is if we get banking regulations 
that will eventually lead to you know cost of capital coming down it leads to allowance for uplisting on us exchanges for us from otc up to nasdaq and nyse and then that leads the the door open for institutions and their compliance departments to allow investment into cannabis stocks and i think that the i think as a group like assuming that the market doesn't totally fall apart. Like I think these things should trade at 30 plus times EBITDA given their growth profiles and their cash flow generation. And you can buy, you can buy this group right now for 10 to 15 times and fundamentals are getting better. And you, and you can see this wave of, uh, you can see this wave of, of federal regulatory changes coming, uh, and the inevitability of institutions coming in. I think it's a pretty powerful formula. I would totally agree with you. And for some people who aren't aware of what banking could do, um, you know, if the MORE Act or Safe Banking Act or any, anything that passes that has banking and you can now write off employee wages and property tax, all these things, if you're uh, an MSO, that's going to immediately improve your overall profitability. Mm -hmm. Right. So once you can write off things at 280E, you have all of a sudden a massive amount of profit uh, and you're I would imagine your stock price is going to reflect that the moment that banking is allowed. Yeah. And just think of like, you know, we've been buying, you know, we've been financing equipment in our, in our factories and our facilities. We've been financing that with equity raises. That makes no sense. Like as an industry, you've had to, we've had to dilute ourselves by, by rate, by buying things that are asset asset backed that should that should be asset backed financing we've had to finance with equity mm -hmm. and so that was sort of the first phase and then the second phase like okay well we'll do some equipment financing for you but we'll do it at 18 percent you know okay and now you're getting to a point where you know the cost of capital for those financings are starting to come down um even you know three years ago iapr was offering cap rates you know the 20 plus percent range Right now, you know, they're kind of in the low teens. And I think that they, you know, have to go lower still. Would you so, get for your Colorado uh, facility, if you don't mind me asking, is the rate still outrageous? Uh, well, we, did, we didn't have Colorado. We had Washington and uh, Washington and Massachusetts. Oh, I thought you were looking at Colorado real estate to expand in there. I was curious about their, because I know their real estate was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the cap rates that, you know, we're talking about are, are kind of in the low teens. Mm. Um, so not great, but not ridiculous. And you have to remember, though, that if we build a, you know, if we win a New Jersey license and we build a cultivation processing facility in New Jersey, you have to remember that the internal rates of return on that product project are near, nearing triple digits. So... You know, once you start cash flowing out of that thing, you could probably pay the whole thing off in three years. Mm -hmm. So while, you know, a mid-teens or low-teens uh, cost of capital seems egregious to folks, when you're when the, when the project you're putting into it is, has close to triple-digit returns, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, okay, well, yes, we'd like to see the cost of capital continue to come down, but we can still make a really healthy return even at these levels. Mm -hmm. You know, this morning I saw that Apple had a rare downgrade and I'm curious with the, the amount of prime brokers getting into analyzing and rating cannabis like Bank of America, um, 
we even had a flora had an ipo on nasdaq the first plant touching company to have a direct listing on nasdaq i'm wondering if all of this is kind of getting banks uh you know institutional investors on board what is it going to be to finalize that because obviously they don't want to risk their charter is it a, a banking law that's going to get them finally on board and get the black rocks involved i think that um it's really the compliance department and I'll give you an anecdote. So I have a good friend who works for, actually was with him yesterday, uh, works for a, a, a fun company here in Boston that's got about 15 billion in assets. And they got really hot to trot on launching a cannabis fund and, you know, had changed, the, you know, were ready to change their prime broker to one that was willing to process cannabis names. They were ready to go. And, you know, their outside counsel calls their compliance department and says, okay, so you're now on the hook for wire fraud. Is that what you want to be? And, you know, of course, the compliance, the internal counsel sort of you know, says, holy crap, no, that's not what I, I'm really scared. And uh. So what I would submit to you is that compliance departments want, they want to jump in the pool. You know, you're seeing Jeffries, you're seeing Needham, you're seeing Craig Hallam. They're, they have analysts covering the space, but they're not, they're not really in capital formation mode in earnest right now because, yeah, we want to give advice. We want to raise money. I, would say, I, I think that when banking comes, you have an acknowledgement by the federal government that this is quasi-legal, even though it might not say that. Who knows what this Safe Banking Act is finally the final language is going to look like. Mm -hmm. But I think that it will give folks enough comfort. I mean, if not folks, internal compliance folks, I think it will give them enough comfort and enough cover your ass to jump into the pool. Mm -hmm. so I think they're that close. And I think they're just looking for an excuse to make that leap. And I think safe banking is just going to be, you know, pushing that snowball down the hill. Yeah, maybe KYC should have been KYA instead of know your customers <laughs> cover your ass. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, so I, I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the industry. I don't know if you've got any crystal ball predictions. There's anything that you want to, um, I don't know, throw out there that you think is going to happen. Obviously, you said legalization isn't going to happen for uh, this administration at all. Five years, maybe 10 years um we are kind of approaching that that golden age of, of u.s cannabis is there any crystal ball predictions you have that you want to include at this time well i think that increasingly you're going to hear people talk about low-cost production and mm -hmm. the importance of that because of the elasticity in the end markets you know and you're seeing you know when 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 Boris from Curaleaf came out with their the 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 land they're buying in in Colorado just talk about low cost production. These MSOs, you know, the bigger MSOs are, are going to have to start to tune into that because you making money in Massachusetts right now, selling weed at $4,000 a pound is pretty easy. Um, but as that continues to commoditize, they're going to have to sharpen their pencils, really sharpen their, their, um, their operations and get costs out. So I think that's going to be a really big deal um, and increasingly a big deal. And, there are companies i think that they're i think that we are probably you know the top one or two low-cost producers right now we just need more scale so i think low-cost production is going to be a, be a big deal going forward i think that there's going to be a ton of consolidation in this industry uh over the next six months you know for my chair 
you know, I am, I am part of our business development team and it is a very flirty environment out there right now. People are looking to, you know, get scale, um, shore up their footprints, bring more uh, talent into their and, and know-how into their organizations. Um, and it's a fascinating time, right? Because here you have this $100 billion industry in the US and people say, okay, well, who do you own? It's like, all right, well, I own GTI and Curaleaf and maybe Truly. And after that, you know, there's there's a lot of money to be made in that sort of second tier who are coming on strong, like us, I think. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of money to be made uh, in that second tier of and and investors it would behoove investors to really look at who's been operating well, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, who's who kind of has room for for step function growth and and the commensurate multiple expansion. If we were to peel a layer, uh, you know, an onion layer off and really look to see at what's driving low cost production, is it, is it, is it standard operating procedures or is it competition? You know, when we look at, at um, Oregon with 3,500 licenses and, and the a crazy amount of overproduction, I look at Oklahoma and it scares me that they have 7,500 licenses. Mm. So there's a massive amount of consolidation that's going to happen in that state alone. So is it the competition that's driving the price down or is it the improvement of operations? Uh, where are you seeing uh, that drive for you know, profitability and low cost production? Yeah, so, um, you know, in, a, in those West Coast states, so Washington and Oregon, Washington, you know, I think they had 1600 cultivation licenses. Don't quote me on that, but it's, you know, that's a big number. Mm -hmm. So these folks had come into the market and you saw the, the wholesale price of weed go from $2,000 a pound to, I think it bottomed under $600 a pound. Mm -hmm. And most of the folks that applied for these licenses or that were running these licenses are sort of saying, you know, we can't figure out how to make money at $600 a pound. And so they're leaving the market. And what we've done is we applied, um, you know, low cost production methodologies really applied from the seafood industry. Um, the Gottmaker family is one of the largest seafood distributors in the country. So they figured out how to, you know, package, how to buy efficiently, how to automate wherever they can, how to private label, how to white label. Um, and we applied a lot of those best practices to the cannabis industry. And so we've, we've, we've figured out how to ring costs out wherever we could um, and uh, automate wherever you can. Um, and I think that, back to your back to your question your original question competition starting to leave the market competition can't we've seen the price in 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 washington rebound from six hundred dollars a pound up close to a thousand dollars a pound because people are just leaving the market saying "Shit, i can't make money at these levels mm -hmm. um so that's kind of that's kind of great for us because we were making 25 30% margin selling wheat at $600 a pound and as that pricing goes up that's all profit to us so washington is as you know a very competitive market but our theory is if you can make it there you can make it anywhere mm -hmm. and and Mass, if you're if you're just working in Florida, Massachusetts, Illinois right now, 
you can throw labor at the problem and you can still make plenty of money because the pricing's so good. But you're going to have to figure out, you know, sooner rather than later, um, you know, how to produce efficiently at scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of first mover advantages of, of uh, being in business as long as you guys have uh, knowing the industry, knowing the markets. Um, it's funny that you got some of your SOPs from the fishing industry because we've seen some of the cannabis containers look like tuna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it didn't work out very well. The branding didn't work out. People thought it was tuna. And so they've switched. So I just thought that was kind of a, a funny little uh, comparison there, but uh, definitely some some really good, uh, phenomenal first mover advantages that you guys have. So I'm going to be excited to see where you guys move as there is consolidation. That's going to create a substantial amount of opportunities for you guys. Yeah, like this, this is the, you know, there's no secret sauce, Josh. You know, everyone's like, okay, so what's the secret sauce of being a low cost producer? And it's really being, you know, an operator, it's bulk buying, it's, it's, you know, figuring out the right strains, it's automating where you can, it's squeezing the labor out where you can, it's no one thing. And it really comes from, you know, the skin knees and the learning of operating in a really competitive environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can take those lessons and we can apply them to states that are a lot less competitive. And I think it sets us up for not only taking a lot of share, but, you know, allowing us to be the price leader, but also being very profitable at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exciting times. Uh, we're going to have uh, your LinkedIn contact as well as a uh, Forefront uh, website in the description for the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to plug at this time? No, we um, really appreciate you have us, having us on. We're just stay tuned for Forefront's, you know, Forefront's entrance into the California market. Uh, we're, we're turning on a facility, which, which we think is, um, going to be very disruptive. And, um, you know, as an investor, you know, when you, when you find companies that have a, a disruptive, uh, technology or, 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 or disruptive, uh, facility coming online, I think that, you know, it sort of behooves people to, to pay attention. So we're excited to see how California goes. Um, but we, we love how we love the setup. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, hoping to get down there, maybe do a, an interview live at the, the world's largest production facility down there in California with the fifth largest GDP uh, market in the world being Cali. That's exciting. Yeah. Welcome anytime. Looking forward to it. All right. I think with that, we're going to roll this one up. I want to thank my guest, Andrew. Too. He's a CFO of Forefront. Andrew, thanks for being on the Talking Hedge. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash cool. that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got.